Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, October 16th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Joy and Peace, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. Verse 21, he stops and he said, It is good not to eat meat or drink or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So he's telling us that this sacrifice for unity is a good thing. There are going to be times where you're going to think, why, why can't I do that? Why can't I eat this? But it wounds someone else. You see, there's something amazingly wonderful about the idea of someone sacrificing for you. This is not about your personal feelings on stuff. Go back to God's Word. Find out what God's Word says about how we live together. And if your brother's offended by something you're doing, just stop and back up. Take the servant role. Ask God to retain the fellowship together. That's what will be pleasing to the Lord. Paul is going to deal with a, a life question here when uh, the underlying tone of it is, is, what about things that don't happen according to our plan? What about things that aren't a part of our desires or our outcome that we really want to see done? I, I go back in life, and uh, the more and the older I get, the more I feel like the answer is lower your expectations. Um, and right now I'm at a place where I have like no expectations of anything. <laughs> because life just kind of treats you that way. And remember, I, I mean... You go back in your mind, go back to those middle school years, right? That, that horrible, awkward time in life, right? Where you're trying to identify who you are, what you're about. Um, should I wear this outfit? Should I wear that outfit? How should I do my hair? You're just coming into uh, conformity to the world and you're, you're starting to realize that, man, I, I don't like this because every day is filled with anxiety and worry and I lack clarity on where am I going today? What is it all about? And and then you kind of get to this stage of life, this new season. Uh, many of us call it that midlife crisis, which is a lot like middle school, but just with resources. <laughs> right? I just, I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't, you know, I mean, what is my purpose? What does God want from me? I've, I, man, I've tried so hard to be prepared. I mean, I had this, this thought that by the time I was 35, I'd be the senior executive and I'd be ready to retire at 40. And what I got at 40 was my eyeballs hardened and I can't see. And that's life. And then you start to move into the fourth quarter of life and, and again, you, you find yourself uh, wandering from one room in the house to the next room in the house. You can tell anybody what your, what your phone number was in your home that you grew up in, but you have no idea why you're standing in the living room right now. <laughs> Sometimes things don't happen the way that we plan. Could you imagine being raised as a young Jewish boy or a young Jewish girl and being told for your whole life that you are God's chosen people. You are God's chosen people. You've been entrusted with the oracles of God's word. You've been entrusted with the law of God. And no matter what you do, no matter what you try, you're trying to work favor with God. You're trying to live a life of obedience that you can point to and say, see, I am a righteous person because I obey the law. But, but Paul's been telling us that the law is, is gone. There's just the law of Christ. It is the gospel as we've been doing it, the gospel for all time. 
Paul's letter is to two different people groups, Jews and Gentiles. This, this letter is to talk to the Judaizers who are saying, no, it's law, it's law. You have to obey, you have this law. And, and anyone who isn't obeying the law, who's not wearing the right outfit, dressed in the same way, talking the same way, quoting the old, uh, old scriptures, is in fact unclean, like all those Gentiles. But Paul is telling him that it's neither the person who is the legalist, as Bob talked about last week, or the person of license that thinks they can do anything they want. Paul, he, did he not deal with us on that? He, he told us that you can't sin all the more so that grace can abound. You can't just do as you please like the antinomian, this, this licensed person. You must glorify God in the hope that is in the gospel, which is found in his word. Man, it's powerful what he's, what he's getting across, right? He's, remember, remember in the Old Testament, we go all the way back to Genesis and the fall of man, and you, you see both the curses and the blessings of God. Remember in the, in the fall, right, that, that God gave the curses to the man and to the woman, but in there he also sprinkled hope, and that hope was is that from the woman would come a man, would come a son, and that son would crush the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise his heel. There's hope. Could you imagine being the firstborn son of that family, and all the perceived pressure that, hey, God said from the woman will come a son, you're that son. So you're gonna be the one that's going to crush the serpent's head and it'll bruise your heel, but you're gonna be a great person. Or that God would come to Abraham and he would say that that, uh, from you will come many nations. And you go about your life trying to do your plan, not God's, not trusting and hoping in his plan. The last week, Pastor Bob, he finished on the verse in Romans 14 that said, anything not done in faith is sin. Think about that for a second. Anything. Every expectation, every plan that I've had that I find myself anxious or hurt or angry or depressed over those decisions, it is God's decreed plan that that's what it is. And I must submit myself to the authority and the holiness of God. I must submit myself, as Paul has said, to the authorities, divinely appointed authorities of the civil magistrates. I must defend, I must define myself as submitting to the leaders that God has divinely appointed in this church as an elder, as a brother, as a sister. We must find ourselves unified in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we live by faith? If everything has to be done in faith to avoid sin, how do I do that? That's what Paul's gonna deal with here today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, man, I am humbled by this text. I'm humbled by a life uh, that so often wants to be what it wants to be. But Lord, help me, help all of us to submit to you and your plan, your design, the plan that you have given us from the very beginning of time, you have never changed. It has always been that the righteous should live by faith. Help us, Lord, to grow in this grace. Help us to grow in a better understanding of your son. It is in Christ's name that we pray, amen.
To understand the context of Romans 15, we want to go back, if you want to flip back a little bit to Romans 1. Remember why Paul wrote the letter. Remind yourself of just the nuances that he has in the very beginning of this. I'll skip through it, paraphrase it a little bit, but right in Romans 1, um, he says that he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Verse two, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is not new. He's telling both Jews and Gentiles that this has always been the plan, that the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, do you realize that the prophets prophesied about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And in three, he says, concerning his son who was descendant from David. It's important to know where Jesus came from. David, who was the root of Jesse. David, who was a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was not a Jew. And David is a descendant and Jesus is a descendant of that and was declared to be the son of God and the power according to the spirit of holiness. Skipping down to five, it says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. All nations, all people that came from Abraham, all people, Jews and Gentiles, that this is about the obedience of faith, not the obedience of you. It's always been about the obedience of faith. Who's he writing to? To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's talking specifically to those people in whom he has called, those who he has elected, those whom he has appointed, those who in fact he has predestined. He covers all these aspects of justification in Romans 1 all the way through to the end of 11. He wants to thank God through Jesus Christ for everyone. For God is my witness on whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Right, skip down to verse 13 about C. It says, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul is an apostle who is delivering the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus was the son of God, the God man who came and shared the gospel with the Jews. Look at what he says, I'm under obligation, both the Greeks and barbarians, both wise and foolish. Look at why, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For in it, in this gospel, is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It has always been about faith. It has never been about your righteousness that you will achieve through your radical obedience. It has never been solely about the grace that you are saved by because of your disobedience. But it is about a righteousness that we have through the works and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that the righteous shall live by faith. It is about hope. Today is about a hope that we have in God, the God of hope. And it is about an abounding hope. So how do we live by faith? The first thing that he's gonna deal with in verses, Romans 15, one through three, the first thing he's gonna deal with in the context of one through three is it's not about you. It's not about me. In fact, it's not about any of us. This has never been about us. 
It's always been about him. This is powerful. He's gonna say in verse one, we who are strong have an obligation. An obligation to do what? Not for faith, but we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. We are obligated to to bear with the failings. This sounds a lot like, hey, how about you remove the log from your own eye before you go after the speck in your brother's? That self-righteous person, that person who's pointing to their self-righteousness, their legalism, and saying, I are in favor with God because I obey. Remember the rich young ruler? All these things I've kept from my youth. Great, then give everything you have to the poor and follow me. You see, you don't have faith anymore. You're here self-righteously about your works, your righteousness, but we're told to strong that we are to bear or to endure the failings of the weak. Paul told us in Romans 14, one through four, he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. When you see that self-righteous brother or sister, when you see that self-righteous person in life that points to their self-righteous legalism, when they point to that, you are to welcome them. And you're not only to welcome them, you're not to quarrel over your opinions about their legalism. You see, because he's gonna say that, that the one who... Uh, let not one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. You see, it is God that has welcomed these people, both the legalist and the licensed person. It is God who has brought them into his kingdom, to his fold, for his sheep will hear his voice. Faith, faith is regardless of whether you are weak, whether you are a legalist, or whether you are a licensed person. Remember, we just read it in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting the Old Testament there. You see, we are right before God because of a faith in his righteousness. Faith in God means that we do not act with a view to our own gratification or our own desire. By far, one of my most favorite scripture verses that hangs in the wall in my office, right, is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not be in want. Man, I, I, I stare at that word, want, all the time. You see, because there are so many things, so many opinions that I have, so many wants, so many desires, but I am to look to the shepherd, the chief shepherd, and I am not to want, why? Because he causes me to lie down in green pastures, because he walks with me beside still waters, because his rod, his staff, they comfort me. Because even though I'm gonna walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know he's with me. How much of my life is surrounded by the things I want rather than just contentment in what God has given me that I need? Man, this is a wrestling match. It's self-righteousness. Paul is saying here, don't don't pursue self-righteousness which arises from the weakness of your faith. The weakness of your faith. You keep looking at, hey, I worked hard, therefore I should be rewarded. Hey, I'm the best at this, therefore I should be in charge. Hey, you don't understand what's going on here, but, but I'm quite a big deal. 
Oh, there is so much self-righteousness within us. You see, you cannot obey yourself into salvation. You can't work your way there. We are saved by his grace through faith, not of works, should any man boast, right? But it is the gift of God. But there is something that you can do. What he's calling us to do as obligation is he's telling us that we have to bear with those who are weak, who don't have what you have. Look how Paul does it in his model in 1 Corinthians 9, 20. I'll put it up on the board here, but it says, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why did I do that? that I might win those outside the law. Look at 22. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. In fact, I have become all things to all people, but by all means, I might save some. Powerful words. Powerful modeling. We have a sister church in Poland. The pastor there, senior pastor's name is Kleko, and Kleko has this tendency to wear this little uh, white uh, collar like he's a Roman Catholic priest. And he walks around town and he introduces himself to people and people naturally will of course look at him, look at the collar and say, Father, it's wonderful to see you today. And then of course he invites him to his church. Because to the Catholic, he becomes a Catholic to win souls. You see, we don't have to live our life doing everything which we know we have the right to do. Pastor Bob talked about that last week. Just because it's legal to do something doesn't make it right to do. His example was, although prostitution is legal in a small county in Nevada, it doesn't give you the right, you have the right to go and do that, but you don't have the righteousness to go and do that. We should not make our own desires the rules by which we live by. You see, in fact, the licensed person is ultimately a legalist because the licensed person is the one who creates their own rules and then follows them and believes that that makes them righteous. We're not here to exercise our Christian liberty or faith. We're here to glorify the one true God. You see, it is through faith in verse two, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. That's our purpose. To please our neighbor, to do it for his good. We do this in view uh, to his good so that he may grow, so that he may be edified, so that they may in fact see the glory and the beauty of Christ through us, his servants, We see this edification in scripture, right? And it's for the purposes of to promote spiritual welfare of our neighbor, to point them to the gospel. He gives the model of this as well. And not only the model, he's gonna give us the motivation. He does this in verse three. He says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You see, he's citing here that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He's citing Psalm 69.9. And he's applying it to Christ himself, did not please himself. 
the example, right, of Christ is constantly held up throughout Scripture from Old to New Testament. It is the continuity of the Old to the New Testament. It's not merely a model, but it's a motivation. You see, the disinterested of Christ, right, for Christ did not please himself, illustrates by a reference to the fact that he suffered not for himself. In fact, I would argue that he didn't even suffer for you or for me. But he suffered for the glory of God. Not my will, but your will be done. If there's any other way for this cup to pass, Lord, I don't want to experience the wrath of you But Lord, not my will, but your will. He did it for the glory of God the Father. When we start to understand that it's not about us, then we secondly have to understand that we are to pursue a unity over uniformity. You see, it's not just a unity in a model. And it's certainly not a model of uniformity. It's not that we eat or drink or pray or do everything the same way. It's about a bigger unity, but it's also about the motivation. Christ did it for the glory of God. Look as he starts and pursue unity over uniformity in verses four through six. He says, in verse four, he says, for whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. That, for the purpose of, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. You see, without God's word, I'm not sure that there would be much hope. I know that most of us pursue our life looking for some sort of New Testament Leviticus. Just give me a list of rules and things I need to do on Monday morning so that I'm right with God. No, he wants you to believe in him. He wants you to have faith in him. He wants your entirety of your hope to be in him. He wants you to endure the hardships and the suffering of life. He wants you to go through middle school. He wants you to have a midlife crisis. He wants you in the fourth quarter because he wants you in a place where you're desperately dependent upon him. Trusting him in everything. Verse four, right? He's gonna tell us that it's for our learning that we, through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. Hope isn't a wish, it's a predetermined plan. It's a trust that the plan is gonna work. What God is doing will come true. What did he promise? You know, it's funny, right? We find ourselves, uh, 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 Pastor Brendan, right? He, he said, hey, you know what? All the good is what is to come because we're in the fall. It's cooler temperatures. We should give thanks to the glory of God. Do we do that when it's 120? Because it's still the day the Lord made. We have these blessings in life and then sadly they're interrupted by things that aren't according to my plans. People who thought I would die old, that I would die in my my spouse's loving arms, that there would be this perfect harmony of my life, that all of my kids, my 2.3 kids, would all come to know Jesus Christ, that we'd have the white picket fence, we'd have the wonderful life and all these things would be great and then all of a sudden you turn 40 and your eyeballs harden and you can't even see the paper in front of you. Do you give thanks? God's enduring design of scripture 
is that the plan and the purpose of the word is for not only our salvation, but for our sanctification, that we would grow in our awareness of the holiness of God, and we would grow in our sinful understanding and awareness of our sinful desires, so that we would trust and depend upon the cross that bridges the infinite gap between his holiness and our wickedness. They're intended to secure the greatest object of our hope, which is one day I will not live by faith, but I will live by sight and I will live for all eternity with the God who made me. That's our blessed hope. Verse five, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, with Christ Jesus. Let me be clear there. With Christ Jesus. Right, when we start to understand these things, right, there's these, there's these great questions, right? They come, from, they come from the fall of man. It's why we talked a little bit about Genesis, right? In Genesis 3, 9, right, there's this, there's this great story, and, and the story goes like this. Adam and Eve have just fallen. They're still in the garden, and they're hiding. Remember that story? And suddenly God is in the garden and he comes into the garden, the omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful God asks an incredible question, where are you? He knows where they're at. He knows where they're hiding. He knows exactly why they're hiding. He knows their words before they come off the tip of their tongue. He knows everything about them and yet he asks the question, where are you? The question is, is where are you in relationship to me? We're in in your community with a holy and a sovereign God. But right here, as we get into this, this one another, we go one chapter over, Genesis 4, 9. And again, God's talking to Cain and Abel. Remember the pressure that Cain must have been under, right? This pressure that from the woman would come a son and that son would crush the serpent's head and all these different things. And he's just learned that God is, in, is having favor because Abel um, uh, gave a blood offering and, and Cain offered fruits and vegetables. He's already killed his brother. His brother is buried out in the field. And God asks him a very important question. Where is Abel, your brother? Omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Doesn't seem like he's so bright. He's asking questions he should already know. See, it's not for where exactly is he buried. He's asking him, where are you in relationship to your brother? How many of you have a sibling in your life? Did you choose them? Right? My siblings and I, my oldest sister and my, couldn't be polar opposites. But when you start to realize that this is the person that God chose for me, this is the sister that God chose for me, this is what's happening. God has chosen a certain people and these people are both Jew and Gentile and this Jewish community has been told their entire life that you're the chosen one of God. And suddenly God is appearing to them even though he's been saying it since the beginning of time. He's been saying that, that all the nations would be saved through him. He's been telling us that the nations would extol and, and glorify God. He's been telling us that the Gentiles will glorify God one day in his mercy and he's been doing this over and over and over again and yet they're sitting there saying wait a second you're saving the who a couple weeks <coughs> after Christmas when we get to Jonah 
right? Here is the original racist, right? This is a guy who didn't want to go to, go to Nineveh, right? Because God was going to save those people. Those filthy people are going to be coming into our synagogues, into our temples. They're unclean. Where is your brother? Let me ask you. The brother he's talking about are these chosen people who are on your left and your right. He's not talking about your biological brother or sister, although they can be part of it too. He's asking you, are you aware that you have a brother and a sister on your left and your right? And do you know where they're at? Where are they at in relationship with God? Where are they at in relationship with each other? Love God, love people. Make disciples. You see what God is doing is he's giving us endurance and encouragement to grant us to be like-minded with one another. He's not, he's not talking about harmony in our opinions. I'll get to that here in a second. But he's talking about this encouragement that we are uh, towards like-minded towards one another, both Jew and Gentile. Both your legalist brother and sister and your licensed brother and sister, we are united through the gospel, not through those things. We're united in these things. We have harmony with one another. We are all sinners saved by his grace. And it is because he produces this encouragement and this endurance in his spirit through truth, right? The patience that the apostle Paul is talking about here is the calm and steadfast endurance of suffering. We bear one another's burdens. We confess our sins to one another. We love one another. We endure with much patience one another. We we sacrifice for one another. All of this is afforded to us and has been told to us as hope from the very beginning of time. And what he's saying is not just an external teaching of his word, but he's saying that there's an inward teaching of the Holy Spirit that will enable us to receive and conform to the truths and the precepts of his word. Paul calls us to be like-minded. He's not, of course, talking about harmony of opinions. This is where you go to your friend and say to your friend, hey, uh, you know, my mom told me I have to go and clean my room. She's horrible. And then your friend looks at you and says, you're right. My mom's horrible too. She makes me clean my room. This isn't about aligning ourselves within our political parties. It's not about aligning ourselves with our friends, with our family, with those different things. It's about aligning ourselves in the truth that is in God's word. To be unified in his word. The very truth that he has given us. We are to set our minds on the spirit. Romans 8, 5 says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Sometimes God has a plan that is different than mine. But it's still the day that the Lord made and I'm gonna be glad and rejoice in it. Because the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. See in verse six he says that together you may have one voice. What's the one voice to do? Glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So many of us we're going through life, whether you're, whether you're at that stage of, of, of 
middle school or whether you're at that midlife or you're in your fourth quarter and you're still standing around saying, I just don't know what God wants me to do. Glorify God. That's your purpose. I don't know what job I'm supposed to take. Glorify God. Take whatever job you want. But can you glorify God in it? The harmony of fellowship among Christians is necessary. It's in order that we may glorify God. To honor God effectually and properly, there cannot be any unnecessary dissensions among his people. Even when it's not your plan. You see, whether the weather is 120 or it's a comfortable fall day, Ephesians 5.20 remains the same, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father and the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's it. This is still the day that the Lord's made. We are united in purpose that God is glorified. But we have to be unified in that purpose. Point three today, unified in purpose to God's glory. Verses seven through 13 is all about this unity. He says in verse seven, therefore, because because we're unified in purpose, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We do this in order that with one heart we may glorify God, and this cannot be done unless we are united in the bonds of Christian fellowship. The word here, welcome, has the same sense here that it had in Romans 14.1 when Pastor Thomas talked about uh, faith. He says in uh, Romans 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. You don't welcome him so that you can fight and try and change them. <coughs> you fight with, you welcome them to glorify God by encouraging them and edifying them and building them up. The goal of welcome is to enforce mutual mercy. And that mutual mercy is amongst Christians. There's two specific motives that he lays out. Number one is the kindness of Christ towards us. Because Christ welcomed you, you should welcome them. And point two, the promotion of his divine glory. I not only welcome people because Christ welcomed me, I welcome people to the glory of whom he created. It's important for us to to require this of all of ourselves. God is calling us to a place of divine contentment. That sometimes gets expressed by me and hey, I'm just gonna lower my expectations so that I'm pleasantly surprised by what you're about to say. But this is about divine contentment. It's a contentment in God's plan. It's a hope based upon the words and the promises that the patriarchs gave us. It's a devotion to the apostles' teaching. It's a breaking of bread with one another. It is the fellowship and the assembly of the saints, and it is prayer that we do together. It is the Acts 2, 27 model of the church, that we are, in fact, brothers and sisters living in harmony together to the glory of the one who created us. We are simply servants 
in God's plan. We're servants in both his model and the motivation. The motivation is that we live to the glory of him who created us. Because in verse eight, he's gonna tell you, for I tell you that Christ became a servant, that's the model, to be circumcised, to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. As it is written. I'll get to that as it is written. It's gonna say, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name, right? But this aspect of worship. But, but what he's saying here is he's saying what he said in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, because Jesus came a ser- became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jew. And God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given by the patriarchs, the validation that the word of God is in fact true and reliable and we can have hope in it. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. He's going to say here, he says might, but I'll get to that in a second and deal with that word might. Um, But here's what he's doing. The apostle intends to show how it was that Christ had received those whom he wrote about. Who God wrote about in the Old Testament. He says he had had come to minister to the Jews in verse 8. And also to cause or to motivate the Gentiles to glorify God in verse 19. Or verse 9. The expression here, right, to minister or servant of the circumcision means, means a minister sent to the Jews and the apostles means, uh, apostle is of the Gentiles means apostle sent to the Gentiles, Paul. Both the truth and to maintain the truth of God consistent in his word, the accomplishment of the patriarchs that was made to our patriarchs, to all those of the Old Testament. The truth of God is his precise faithfulness to his historical plan. It gives us such blessed assurance and hope because he is fulfilling exactly what God has said from the very beginning of time. There's one that's gonna come and he's gonna crush the head of the serpent and it will bruise his heel. That person is Jesus himself. God's word will always, always come to be But Christ is exhibiting his condescension, this this kindness that he came as the God-man. Coming not as, as a king, not as a ruler, but as a humble minister to the Jews to accomplish the gracious promises of God. And as we also see, this kindness was not confined to the Jews only, but for the Gentiles are also received into his kingdom. They're united with the Jews on equal salvific terms. And therefore, Christ furnishes the strongest motives for the cultivation of mutual affection. We are to love one another, to be unified, to fulfill God's plan. Here's that third question. Genesis 4, verse 9. And it comes from Cain asking God, am I my brother's keeper? You better bet your life you are. Because one day you and me and all of us, we will stand before the Lord and we will give an account for that person on your left and your right. Are you your brother's keeper? Where are you in relationship to God? Where are you 
with, where is your brother? Do you know where he's at? Are you keeping tabs on him? Because you are his keeper. We hold each other accountable. We encourage each other with the word of God. We point to the truths and the hope and the glory that we have in the person of Jesus Christ because he and he alone is the one who has set us free from the, from the law where we could never earn favor with God, but it is Jesus who fulfilled the law and that law is fulfilled here today by your love. He says in verse nine, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise your name among the Gentiles and sing your name. He comes to this continuity where he's starting to reveal this incredible truth and he wants two outcomes of the work of Christ which Paul presents. Number one, he wants that the truth of God has been vindicated by the fulfillment of the promises made to the Jews. He has fulfilled every promise he gave to God's chosen people. It is all right before them. And secondly, that the Gentiles have been led to praise God for his mercy. When he says might, he's not saying maybe. He's saying that the word of God validates in such anticipated hope that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the gospel of Christ. It's not that the Gentiles might come to salvation. It's that those whom God set his affection on before the foundation of the world will come to him. And it is not our plan, it is not our purpose, it's not the way that I speak here, it's not the way that anyone speaks. It is the Holy Spirit that works within us. For everything we have came to us by God the Father, it came to you via the Holy Spirit, and it is all about the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other purpose in life but the glory of him. That's why he goes into this continuity of the Old to the New Testament. He says, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and I'll sing your name. Paul keeps changing words of verses that he's quoting. He's getting rid of the word nations and he's replacing it with the word Gentile. In Psalm 1849, this true faith that was extended to the Gentiles, to the nations, and therefore all include the extension of all the Redeemer's kingdom as well as the Jews. God is here to save both Jew and Gentile, all nations that came from our father Abraham. Validating his word and his truth is seen throughout all of God's word. He says as it is written, citing Psalm 1849, that true faith would be extended. In verse 10 he says, and again it is said, rejoice O Gentiles, not nations, with his people. In verse 11, he says, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, not nations, and let all the peoples extol him. Let them all glorify him, is Psalm 117, one. And again, he says in verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles, not the nations, but the Gentiles have hope. He is citing Isaiah 11, verses one and 10, right? And this prophecy. This is incredible what he's doing. is the kingdom authority of the Messiah over all nations, both Jew and Gentile. He's fulfilling this word. The promises of the prophet is that this decayed and fallen house of David should arise. Whose authority should embrace all nations and whom the Gentiles as well as the Jews should trust. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy that Christ came and he preached salvation to those who were near and to those who were far off. It's both classes of people. Listen to his closing prayer. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. All joy means all possible joy. Paul here in verse five, he talked about may the God of endurance and encouragement, right? May he give you the hope that you have to love one another. That we are to work out our salvation because it is God's work. It is his plan. It is his purpose. It is his pleasure that we serve. It is the God of hope. God who is the author of that hope, which is the premeditated that man should grow in the root and the offspring of Jesse, of God's chosen people. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And we show favoritism to each other. We lift one another up. And may Jesus himself fill you with all joy and peace in true believing You see, it is God's plan, which is the result of a genuine faith that you would grow and abound in hope when you live by his plan and to his glory. As I bring the worship team up, I just have the three questions for you. Those three questions, where are you in relationship to God? Are you in right standing before him from the faith that was given to you by the grace of God? Where is your brother, that person on your left and your right? Are you there to encourage them and build them up? To glorify God? That brother and sister, the one that God gave you. And don't ever forget, are you your brother's keeper? You bet your life you are. And with that, Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the power of you, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would abound in hope. Let's worship this God. Amen? Let's stand and worship this God. Brothers and sisters, may you have the hope of God his plan, his purpose for you and for me is to glorify him. I apologize that I've gone longer than I've ever gone. But I'm not sorry because I want you to know the beauty and the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love you. We'll see you next week. Minister to one another.